1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor and pronunciation guru Thea Leonarduzzi, although our new producer, Matt, is questioning you, Thea, as whether you are a <laughs> pronunciation so. guru. Why? <laughs>
2: because I'm confused you could f- by, too, by too many languages and I quite often put the emphasis in the wrong part of the word. It's just
1: because you, you pronounce your name with such exuberant flourish, <laughs> I think, that I've crowned you pronunciation. Great. And you are very good at romance languages generally.
2: That's I, think, th- I would I would draw the line yeah, there, though. I, I think sometimes Don't push in, me. I
1: think sometimes in the TS we end up covering non-romance subjects, so we throw we in a bit, of, we are a bit of German. <laughs> Bit of Japanese, maybe, and then you're you're kind of as clueless as me, then. Yeah. Which is a heartening for me. <laughs> so when we're talking <laughs> about is. French and you when we talk about Italian, Elena Ferrante, to, for a so not Elena not so Elena. I have to say, oh, and now we're going to be talking about Elena Ferrante, and there's a pause, and then Thea talks about it, and you call her.
2: Elena Ferrante right and I sound
1: like a hick from the Midlands which I am I concede that point but I don't think you're fully aware how culturally small you make me feel oh I'm sorry I know it's alright it's okay (laughs) we shall move on allow me to remind everyone while I recover myself that you can follow this podcast on Twitter at FBFM underscore podcast and review it on iTunes and if you want to subscribe to the TLS here is a deal for you google TLS subscriptions and type pod one in the offer code section you can and get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the show this week we have an art history special in the paper covering such figures as Hogarth, William Morris, Tom Phillips and those who resisted the rise of abstraction in the 20th century. But the lead is about a monumental book on two major figures of the early modern period, Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel. Are they OK? I saw
2: you roll the R I sh- I I That was interesting. Should, should I? Should I roll?
1: How would you say Bruegel?
2: Bruegel, I Bruegel, well
1: done. This book is by Joseph Kerner, has been reviewed by the magisterial Gabrielle Josipovic, who will join us in a moment. I'm pressing on Thea, we're not asking about that. We don't get proper bohemians these days, complains Libby Purvis in her review of the memoir of the extraordinary, and I do use the term advisedly, Amy Crocker, the San Franciscan heiress of the 19th century who can really show us what true bohemianism, including assignations with snakes, a wild man of Borneo and a feudal Chinese warlord, is all about. She, that is to say Libby, will be in the studio with us. And finally, we're publishing five new poems by the peerless Colm Toybean, who shall join us to read from them.
2: First up today, let's start with Oscar Wilde's truism that life imitates art far more than art imitates life. If that's the case, then our subject's art education must differ wildly from most people's. I'd say Amy Croker must have dropped acid and dashed through the Asian department of the VNA, or a blockbuster exhibition of the Great Surrealists, had she not been born in 1864. Crocker was the sixth child of an extremely wealthy San Francisco family. Her father was a judge and one of the big four railway investors. Her mother founded Sacramento's still-celebrated Crocker Art Museum. But Amy had another life in mind, a life of adventure that would take her to India, China, New York, Paris, Hawaii, and all manner of places in between, where she hung about with our, our man Oscar Wilde and a litany of other wild men, women and animals. Libby Purvis has reviewed a new edition of Crocker's memoir, first published in 1936 and called, provocatively enough, And I'd Do It Again. Libby joins us in the studio now. So, I mean, Libby, the book is, Crocker says, not to be taken as an apology, not at all. Would, I mean, what would she have been expected to apologise for?
3: Oh, just about everything. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, making people faint at a New York dinner party in her old age by appearing in a revealing dress and a, a sort of rather exciting, sexually tight-wound live python round her body. Uh, you That's, know, some, that'll do it. Some people feel you should <laughs> apologise for that. Or just, I don't think you should,
1: actually, now that you mention it. <laughs> well, no, you,
3: you don't. Obviously, yeah. you'd do it. But, uh, but uh, no, it, it, she just, And also for the travelling around the world and all the men... And her absolute openness, we have to presume sexual openness, to all manner of sort of wild men of Borneo and uh, sort of random Indian gurus and Chinese philosophers and so on. She always had a husband, some kind of husband dragging along behind her, who seems to have had to just put up with it. And yes, yeah, so she was a shocking woman. But I think what's nice in the book is what comes off it as a sense of a proper bohemian. She was just doing her thing. She had unlimited money. And she was just doing what she felt like. And she had enormous respect for the cultures of the places she went. There's a really interesting moment when um, uh, she's in Hawaii with King Kalakaua uh, doing the hula hula and dressing local. And she feels that sex is very natural and fine. And the local missionaries call her carnal and filthy. And she says, well, if by refusing to snub and patronise the natives we did them harm, I wonder how these good commercial men of God will answer one day for the land that they took away from the Kanakas. Well, I mean,
2: and in her politics, she's extremely enlightened in that sense, isn't she? She thought the, the British Raj was absurd.
3: Yes, she's very hard on the British Raj. And I have to say, I, I mean, I went on a holiday recently and I read an awful lot of Somerset Maugham for some reason because it was kind of hot and there were crickets going, night <laughs> and I just sort of felt like it. And I was just reading about all these colonial governors who are often about 19, you know, in yeah. remote islands. And, you know, there's one where they rush her away because she's basically, she, she's got the whole tribe, you know, she, she's, she's fallen for the headman of the tribe. And um, the whole tribe is kind of saying you can't have a white woman and, and rushing her out. And you feel he just appears in passing, this poor local governor, but my goodness, the, the resident, you know, but, but he has to get her home. He has to get her out of his patch. She was clearly an absolute menace because she was very rich and very self-indulgent and did exactly what she wanted and never apologised for it.
1: And the world then was kind of large, wasn't it? I mean, struck whenever you read books of Victorian adventures, they were... They had a strange freedom to 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 travel to places. They were discovering things, if not for the first time, for relatively recently otherwise discovered, and so they were having very fresh, very real experiences. And whenever you read these adventure tales, they. they they sort of fill you with a sense of nostalgia for something you've never experienced and could never experience.
3: But, you know, quite a lot of those, sort of vic- we say Victorian, of course she was American, um, adventures of that period are a bit contemptuous. You know, they're a bit looking down on the poor fuzzy-wuzzy natives and so on. Rather like they, they, all these Raj of Somerset, Maugham lot, lot were. Yeah. And um, maybe it's because she's a woman... She absolutely doesn't. She's just totally open to them. She thinks they're all splendid, you know, and, and she she falls for <laughs> she falls for all sorts of people. She she becomes a sort of um prisoner of a warlord in China who says, I am the master of all that is beautiful in this house. I may keep these things, give them away, or break them if it pleases me. And she has to escape in the middle of the night. Um and ends up having a sort of naked experience. A naked
1: orgasmic experience you call it, Libby, in the book. Let's not be coy about this. Indeed.
3: An old man plays a stringed instrument with rhythm after rhythm consuming her and she faints dead away and comes round. You see, this is the thing. In the ladies dressing room of an expat club with an Irish attendant holding smelling salts under my nose. I want the memoirs of this Irish attendant.
1: (laughs) This stuff doesn't (laughs) happen anymore, Libby. The the world has become very small and very sterile at this point.
3: Everyone knows they're being watched at every yeah, every moment. Well, though. and also everybody yeah. wants to sell themselves at the time. I mean, she mm. just had her 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 circle, her circle of people, some of whom thought she was very shocking and others oiled up to her because she was rich when she did get back to America. But she just kind of got on with it. I mean, now, you know, there's, there's an extraordinary bit where she goes to this party wrapped up in the boa constrictor she's borrowed off a friend. Um, <laughs> and she um, said, you know, they, they, the newspapers made the story into an orgy based on some vague idea of snake worship, which is very unrighteous kind
1: <laughs> but do you think she do you think she enjoyed the attention
3: of course she enjoyed the attention she did it for attention but yeah. you know she, she just sort of feels that it wasn't snake worship she was just enjoying herself with her boa constrictor and her <laughs> decollete uh, sequined dress um
1: was but, she not restricted by being a woman at all is one of the liberating things about this in a sense that she is a woman at a time where there wasn't always a tremendous amount of liberation just, she doesn't seem restricted by her do you know gender what? at
3: all if you were rich I think you could pretty much do anything. There is a wonderful novel by that very, very underrated novelist Laurie Graham, which yeah. was first called *The Unfortunates* and then later *The Great Husband Hunt*. And that is about an American heiress of exactly this period. You know, her father goes down on the Titanic and she inherits her money. And she just goes around doing what she likes. She actually ends up in in Britain for a, for a spell, as well. You know, married to an aristocrat, and she learns to and she flies a plane. Yeah. You know, she learns to fly and just just does it. I think if you were rich enough, you could just do anything people will always oil up a bit to the rich yeah. and put up with a lot from them but the thing is she you know she she just did these things for the event for the moment now you feel she'd have sold that party to hello magazine
1: yeah it would be contrived yeah. now wouldn't
3: it yeah and it would be all commented on in the tabloids and so on but but she just she was just a wealthy hedonist but she had these saving sort of proto pc views which respected every culture she went into and you know, thought it was interesting and exotic and liked some people in it and disliked others. And the one person she's really vile to I think I should mention this in your presence, Stig as an Englishman. Um, oh. there's, there's a handsome <laughs> Englishman called Huntingdon Mere. Good says, name. Why are British persons of a certain class always so embarrassed and pink? And she gets annoyed. <laughs> He gets annoyed because she falls for Baron Takamini, who eventually oh, yes. kills himself um, because somebody else rejects there him. There are
2: lots of suicides and executions. To- really totally, really, absolutely.
3: Constantly. <laughs> one, one, man who's, one man who has a very odd death in which he hypnotises himself into a cataleptic trance and gets accidentally autopsied while he's still alive. That happens. You're Ooh. like a
1: kind of Nabokov <laughs> in this review, actually. You just offhand kill people. Off. You know, this poor Baron, Miss Darnay, who turns him down and provokes ritual suicide, you say coldly, Libby. Just there he is, dispatched <laughs> and forward. Words, well, ritual suicide? It's because
3: it's because Amy, my new heroine in life, she moves on, and she doesn't like people who grumble. There's a wonderful thing about this Englishman when she says, snarled, "I do not believe there is a woman alive or ever has been who can stand whimpering on the part of a full-grown man." Yeah. That's the Englishman. Stop your yeah. whimpering. They're either the Raj, my wife would agree with that. <laughs> they're either the Raj or they
1: whimper. They whimper. I mean, yeah. This is
3: this is this is a uh, you know she's remarkable. because She's not a stylist, but she's very very. Strong. Straightforward. She just tells it as it is, or as it possibly was. Well, I mean, she it clearly be, embroiders. And it would
2: be remiss to say uh, uh, to, to not say. I mean, it wasn't all high jinks and, and fun adventure. Because I mean, she she. Her, her child was was her she lost custody of her first child. She Doesn't and, mention
3: that at all. She, she, I think there's there's half a line. The, she's got no space for the dark. There times. was a gigantic row over her husband. You know, oh. uh, her, who, who there was a break up with her husband, and he got custody of the child, which was disgraceful, and so on. And she just sort of set off across the world. Um, so no, she doesn't she doesn't bother with the dark side, unless of course it's other people's dark sides being autopsied while they're alive, or whatever. She just she just feels that it's a she, she's on. The side of the of the louche and there's a lovely moment with oscar wilde where she has a drinking game with him she says i'm aware of the gigantic structure of naughtiness which the world has hung around <laughs> the neck of his memory this is in 1936 but she thought he was charming if rather prone to dominating the conversation i'm <laughs> sure that's what it takes one
1: to know one what is this, this slightly reminds, you could tell me this is completely untrue because the mora- morality is different she, this reminds me of a flashman novel in the sense of you know sort of careening round. Um, the various exotic locations getting into hijinks and sexual adventures. But of course, in the end, she is on the side of the angels because she regards people as people. She sees people as just who they are rather than what race they are, what class they are, which is kind of the opposite of what Flashman yes. does.
3: And one thing we should mention is that she she is accustomed to being very rich and she's horrified when there's a clamp down, at World War I, and the, the, the dollar suddenly you're not allowed to get dollars from America and so she has to travel back on the ship. It looks as if she's going to have to travel steerage like any immigrant woman and she really thinks it's terrible and the newspapers will crucify her if it's discovered she's travelled as an immigrant woman so she bribes one of the officers to give up his bunk and then she has another sort of weird little quasi-sexual adventure on board uh, with a chap who embraces her and her main fear is that he would he would feel her various ropes of pearls and jewels she's hung round her neck
2: and, and this is the while only- he presses
3: himself against Against her. Mm. This is the
2: only way in which the First World War intrudes on her life. Well, <laughs> is yes. this is the only mention <laughs> she
3: makes. Why would it?
1: <laughs> so she's a sn- bit it. of a snob. Uh, she's not not a snob.
3: um I wouldn't say she was a snob. I think she's a bit. She she doesn't like the idea of the newspapers mocking her, but she mixes with all sorts. I mean, she does rather prefer them to be sort of Japanese barons or very senior and important Chinese warlords. The Chinese warlord is the one seriously frightening bit where you think actually she might have not got out again. Um, Well, she talks about
1: watching death by... A thousand cuts, which is one of the presumably one of the worst things anyone could ever really see. And then someone
3: throws a knife and stabs her dressing gown as it lies on the bed. You see, and she could have been in that, but she wasn't. She she gets out,
1: and um, does she play down the the seriousness of incidents for the sake of the narrative? I mean, I'm, I'm struck by you say she's no stylist, but and you feel she's embroidering it. I mean, are there moments where you think she's she's just playing up for the for the cameras, as it were?
3: I think a bit, yes. But, I mean, there has to be a, a, a core of truth in all of this. And, I mean, the core itself is, is mind-boggling enough. Um, and I don't really care if it's true or not. You know, you you might feel this is someone someone's made up. Yeah. You know, you might think, I wondered at first, is this a fake? Yeah. And then I sort of looked her up and actually it doesn't seem to be at all a fake. And I, I think, in a way, the book doesn't read like a fake because they would there's lots of bits which uh, you know a, a writer would embroider yeah. you know and she just says and, you know and so i went to you know, and so i went and, and sort of just a nice little grace notes like when she hires a schooner charters a schooner to go to the um, islands you know when she's off to hawaii on the first leg of her big voyage and the skipper says to her as long as you're not a missionary i'm not having any more missionaries <laughs> and she agrees that she's absolutely not a missionary that, yeah. huge disapproval of missionaries i mean she feels that they they were venal and they were oppressive and she's very anti-religion and again if you're rich enough you can get away yeah. with that
4: yeah.
2: and well, how, how did how how did her story end because obviously this is a memoir written in 36 1936 and she was 77 had five years left to, to live how did how does her story end uh,
3: that I only know by looking her up, literally on on the internet. I think she just she just faded. She she died. I mean, nothing very dramatic happened. It wasn't a python or anything like that. Uh, but she. It's a shame she, that she didn't
1: have an, a, an end that meet, meets the rest of her life. In a way. You know,
3: she was. I, I like the idea of her sitting there in nineteen thirty six, on 1936, and just writing it all down. Yeah. Um, you know, th- this has been my life. Uh, clearly, her friends would have encouraged her like mad. By that time, she's being a, a sort of New York or San Francisco socialite again. You know, she's just giving big parties, and the travelling is over. Was she a big so she name went, in Was she a big
1: name in her time? Because I, I've never heard of
3: her. The scandal. She was a big name apparently during the big scandal with yeah. uh, with her husband. Um, and. You know, I think she was probably a sort of socialite name. I haven't been able to find very many writings about her, but that's just because that kind of writing is not so easily accessible. You yeah. know, unless you go mm-hmm. to London Library and
1: and truffle around. It's it's probably wrong in some senses, but you do have a sense of the era, don't you? That that ability mm-hmm. when you know, for that fantastic wealth, made you so much above ordinary experience. Fantastic wealth now, I suspect, must be incredible, but it doesn't remove you so much mm-hmm. from the ordinary run of things as it must have done when you're a millionaire in. Nineteen hundred. You really were a millionaire and your life was completely removed from everyone else's.
3: And I think you also felt that there was a, (sighs) you could go out into a sort of lawless world, you know, and you could, if you had enough money and bribed a few of the right people when you arrived and got the most comfortable place, you know, probably somebody else shuffling out of their palace for you, you were fine. You had a sense of Um, entitlement. Yes. I wonder if that
1: sense of entitlement has gone. And and there's a um, downside to that as well. I you would think, say not. Do you think not?
3: <laughs> I would say not. I think all these sort of... Really? But, but it's so dreary now. You know, it's kind of Justin Bieber's kind of going around failing to get monkeys across borders and yeah. so on. Uh, <laughs> she, would, she would never have failed to get her monkey across oh, the she, border. Oh, she she had a monkey, they'd have had no chance. She just <laughs> brought it with her. There, there aren't very many other animals, and it's mainly the python who sort of struck me firmly. Um, <laughs> just but, finally, yeah.
1: a bit. I get the sense you'd like to have lunch with this woman.
3: Uh, Well, she wouldn't let you go. I mean, I think I say in the review that reading this book is like being plied with cocktails by somebody who is determined you are not going to get home, you are not going to get on to your next appointment, you are going to go on and on listening to her, like Scheherazade, while she does multicoloured cocktails at you. And um, as I think I say at the end, I just kind of collapsed into the new Joanna Troll novel. I thought, gosh, the things women make a fuss about these days are really quite small, aren't they?
1: Well, on, on, on that note, it's a, it's a wonderful review. I'm so glad we gave this book to you because you really do. There's a bit of a kindred spirit there. Is that fair to say?
3: Oh, no, I'm a, I'm a wuss. I'm a wuss. Yeah. I'm in a Joanna Trollope novel. That's yeah. the horror of it all. I'm on Radio 4, God help us. But
1: you've basically, I think you've done Amy Cocker Proud. It's a lovely book. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We have a major piece on two significant painters this week. Hieronymus Bosch, born around 1450, dying in 1516, was a Dutch painter whose religious works, the greatest of which are triptychs like the Haywain or Garden of Earthly Delights, seems oddly to have increased in popularity in modern times, despite standing, to some minds at least, as a representation of a very medieval, very orthodox perspective of heaven and hell. Peter Bruegel, born somewhere around 1525, dying in 1569, is regarded by many as the most significant artist of the next period, the Dutch Renaissance. He painted landscapes and peasant scenes, even when he took on grander subjects like the fall of Icarus. I still remember seeing a copy of that painting for the first time, its extraordinary sense of perspective, where the body of Icarus is just a tiny splash of water in the corner, a few feathers floating above it studiously ignored by the agricultural labourers who are the painting's main focus. It was, of course, described in a poem by W.H. Auden. Joseph Kerner has written a massive magisterial work linking the two men together, Bosch and Bruegel, from enemy painting to everyday life. The book is, according to Gabriel Josipovici, an event, a magnificent achievement, which we will be returning to and arguing with for many years to come. Gabriel joins the Thea and me now. Before we get to some moments you disagree with Kerner, perhaps you might explain why this is such an important book. Because I got the feeling, although you had some, not quite complaints, but you had some arguments with it, you feel this is a, a significant and important thing.
5: Well, I've, I've always liked Kerner's work. I thought that the opening and uh, everything he says about Bruegel is terrific because he's able to enter a painting and you know, not just enthuse about it, but enthuse about it, you know, with a purpose. He sort of has a sense of where it's going, and he has the language and the ability, first of all, to express what he sees, but then to take us in with him into what the painting is doing to us as viewers
1: as we are watching it i mean you, you say in the review i thought it's very striking that he has an ability to look and to find words for what he's looking at that sets him in the very front rank of art historians and i don't know whether this is naive but that to me would be a prerequisite in writing about art isn't it? That you can you can you can look at something and find appropriate words for it is that is that not as common as i might believe
5: well, it's, it's, it's common. and you find the words, but, you know, you have to be a stylist and you have to just have a greater sense of purpose about what you're doing. I think this is what's special that, uh, you know, he doesn't just describe it, but because he's entered into it with empathy, he's
2: able to lead us with him. And to come to the central thesis of Koerner's book, how does he link Bruegel and Bosch? How does he bring the two together? Well,
5: this is where I, I began to have slight worries. I found the title a little strange because he's a man, as I said, with a very, very sensitive ear. He writes extremely well. But I found that the subtitle, he calls it Bosch and Bruegel, From Enemy Painting to Everyday Life. Now, i never come across this term, enemy painting, and I, I think it's something he invents. But the thesis itself is extremely simple, and it's an old-fashioned thing that Bosch is medieval and Bruegel is Renaissance. Yeah,
1: And you don't really buy that, do you?
5: Well, it's not my experience of it. I can see that there are big differences between them. I can see that Bosch is clearly much more religious, but it seems to me that both of them move and interest me because of the way that The painting covers the overall surface. Something is going on, rather than everything being geared towards a central event. Everything is sort of spread out on the canvas. Uh, Kerner's argument is medieval. He is dark. His paintings are about the repression of the church and the pathetic nature of a befuddled humanity, taken in by the devil and this is what Bosch paints whereas Bruegel is all about renaissance freedom realism etc you need know, something that was already there in burghart in 19, all the 19th century debates about the renaissance and it seems to me it's a very simplified view of the renaissance as opposed to the middle ages which so much work in the last 100 years has eroded, uh, It's not completely overturned.
2: And when you're discussing um, how your interpretation of uh, Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights, that, mm. that triptych there, that's where the difference in your interpretation and Kerner's really comes to the fore, because you, you're, you're essentially saying that you see a multiplicity of, of equal events as opposed to one overarching grand narrative.
5: Yes. I mean, he's very good with Bosch at showing how these triptychs, of course, as... Used to happen in the Middle Ages, you get this in, in in so many late medieval and renaissance works, the two outer leaves folded over and a different image emerged when you saw it closed. On the closed surface of the,
0: the hay
5: you have a pilgrim or you have a figure crossing a bridge and going on. And he sees this entirely in terms of... It is under the sign of a cross, which you can see at the back of the painting. And then everything in the painting itself is absolutely determined by this God who is looking down at this benighted uh, humanity. And in the Garden of Earthly Delights, he reads every little bit of it as a kind of terrible, dark and repressive thing, which Bosch is somehow creating in order to almost to entrap us hence enemy painting you know it becomes our enemy as we watch it is it not
1: inevitable and this is true i think of literature arguably as as, as much as painting that when you have close readings you end up with closed readings because he's got to he's looking so intently to form a narrative that in doing so, he refuses to allow the notion of multiplicity and variation and other interpretations because he's so closely linking himself to the painting, he's come up with a thesis that he feels he has to defend at all points.
5: But you could say just the opposite. You say if you look very, very closely at individual things, you can see all the multiplicity. It's when you start to stand back a little bit and say, now what's the historical argument that you then oversimplify a historical pattern? And I think this infects even, you, you began by talking about the Icarus. It infects even his reading of Bruegel, which I think is wonderful all the way through. I think it's absolutely terrific. But I didn't have time in my review to talk about Icarus, and that beautiful painting in Brussels that Auden wrote a wonderful poem about. Can I just read you the poem to remind you yeah, of what Auden says? So um, it's very, very famous, and Auden liked the idea that the, you know, the first two letters were A and B, so whenever he, uh, there was an anthology of his that was alphabetical, it was always, always <laughs> came at the beginning. Yeah, that's very good. And I always have in my head his way of, and I couldn't possibly read it, but anyhow, about suffering they were never wrong, the old masters, how well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course, anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot, where the dogs go on with their doggy life, and the torturous horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away, quite leisurely, from the disaster. The ploughman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to, on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to, and sailed calmly on. Now, Kerner makes the very good point that the middle bit is concerned with another painting about the, the tortures and, and the horses rubbing their innocent behind on the tree. And he says, These are ordinary skaters on a pond at the edge of the wood. Why, according to the poem, must they always be there? Because, blissfully and cruelly self-absorbed in their play, children stand for indifference as the inborn and perennial position of the human species. You know, indifference is a very loaded word. Mm. And it seems to me it is sort of saying God is indifferent. The world is indifferent to man. This is a tragedy. Whereas I think both Auden and the painting have something that's more like, I don't know, Homer or uh, Sophocles saying... In the world, many, many different things are going on. We have to accept that. It's kind, um, of, it's kind of
1: heartening, isn't it, I think? That, well, it's, it's, there's
5: a sort of playfulness about it as well. Yes, and as you, you, you mentioned it, Stig, uh, right at the beginning, You know, there is something sort of wonderfully heartening, wonderfully warm and playful. And I think Bruegel catches this. And to narrow it down to the world's indifference or heaven's indifference to man... I think, limited. it. I think whenever Körner deals with, with these larger cultural issues, I feel that uh, something slightly coarser enters into the, the writing and the thinking.
1: If someone listening to this, you can direct them to go and see one painting, Bruegel or, or Bosch, because the great thing about the world now is they're so accessible, people can go and look at them. What would you direct them to? <laughs>
5: You've only got one. You can maybe
1: have one for each artist if you're lucky.
5: I think the look at the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is such a mysterious and strange painting, and I don't think susceptible to any kind of single uh, interpretation, the Bosch. And Bruegel, I do think that uh, Hunters in the Snow is just absolutely wonderful. And you see it on the covers of so many books.
2: And Christmas cards, weird. And
5: Christmas cards, but actually <laughs> cropped, and you need to see it all. Exactly. And Kerner is wonderful at exploring just how our eye is taken into this whole strange white landscape. But he's very good generally
1: on snow in Bruegels. Well, listen, it's a, it, your joy in these paintings comes across very loud uh, as well, Gabriel. So thank you very much for joining us <laughs> um, today.
5: Okay, not at all. I look forward to the issue. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Cheers. When you talk to someone who really does love what they they write about, mm. and you can sense this in this. What I think is very nice uh, for Joseph Kerner is Someone has taken four thousand words, probably a thousand of which are quotations of him. Mm. He's taken him really seriously. He's taken the paintings really seriously, and it does make you go and want to look at him. You know, I could spend, I spent, I lost about an hour looking at Bruegel paintings, uh, having read this review. And <laughs> it I it wasn't lost. No, it was, no, no it was gained. But I do think it, <laughs> one of the things because we've tried to do as many pictures as we can. We've got three big pictures. Because so one of the problems sometimes when you read about paintings. They're not in front of you. Mm. It's quite hard to, to to engage, and I think what's good about this is it makes you go and look at a painting.
2: Well, also, what's what's so interesting about because there are such extended quotations there um, in Gabriel's piece of of Kerner's writing, you can see how immensely detailed it is, and and this. Unrivaled, well, perhaps not unrivaled, but certainly very acute eye for for detail and, and the the story behind the detail, and he takes you, kind of takes you step by step through the narrative and what will happen next, and you know the the peasant will, you know, if you look down, you'll see that he's about to stumble into a river, and you know the hat is about to fall, and you're kind of you're you're drawn into the narrative.
1: I I just assume that most art historical writing of quality would do this, but maybe it's not as common. As I might think the ability to write about a, a painting in a in a way that makes you see it.
2: I'm sure a lot of the time it will be what we were talking about though, where where the thesis kind of bullies the the, the joy of the the, the writing of the, the painting, the description out of out of the way. go to bluenile.com and use promo code listen to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more that's code listen at bluenile.com for $50 off bluenile.com code listen
1: let us speak to colum toibín the great irish writer whose novels include the testament of mary the heather blazing and the master which is my favorite telling as it does the story of the life of henry james Column is, of course, also a notable poet, and we're delighted to be publishing five new poems in the TLS this week, a couple of which touch upon our overarching theme of art. The torturer's art begins with this line. Like many torturers who came before, the art he favours has a hint of risk and tells the tale of the guests milling about the torturer's home, looking at the paintings on the wall while their host smiles and caters for our needs. Column joins us now. Um, Colin, before we we hear the poems, perhaps you might tell us how poetry fits into your writing schedule. Can you do it while you're write, working on an on a novel, or do you do you need to separate it out?
4: It often comes when I least expect it. There was a good period when I didn't write any poems at all, and then in the wake of writing the Master, when I suddenly had no novel to write, just images would come, and I would I would I would note them down and. Then there's an awful lot of erasure. They're usually much longer, and then eventually they get down to something. You know, I work on them every so often. I just take them out again and think, oh, is there anything more could go in this? <laughs>
2: certainly, certainly, a couple of the ones you're you're going to read for us now sound like they were written perhaps on the say. I sort of have an image of you wandering through an art gallery, possibly in Spain, notepad in in hand.
4: No, it would be late at night with the image coming and then making it far too long and then over, <laughs> over a few months.
2: Well, Medo certainly isn't far too long. It's very, very short. Yeah. I, love, I love that poem.
4: Yeah.
1: The Torture's Art struck me as a bit sort of a dramatic monologue in, in some sense. What, 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 um, what's the thinking I, I behind mean, that? I better
4: not say what country it is, but there is one country in South America where I was actually found myself in somebody's house and I realised that this was the person who had personally tortured people. And, um, but he was the host that evening. And uh, what was notable, I mean, was the art on the walls and how genial generally he was. And um, so um, that, that poem arises very much from being uh, the guest.
1: It, rem- it, was a, it reminded me a bit of, sort of Kurtzier in, in some ways, you know, that's the, the, the civilised front behind which lurks things that are, are rather terrible
4: yes and the art being a dead giveaway you know i mean there was i mean there was no mandrian there it was an awful lot of squiggles
1: and you thought that was indicative of what what lurked
4: beneath well i tried to connect the two you know between this the sort of the there the, the was an element of just of, of the art being overdone
1: making up for something was it perhaps yeah uh, what else are you working on at the moment colin What what are you doing the at the moment
4: I have a novel coming out in May called House of Names, which is a version, I suppose, of the story. Well, no, it is It is a version of the story of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon and Orestes and Electra.
1: Oh, amazing, but not presumably set in those times.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, and set in those times. Is um, it? Yeah, it's not a contemporary telling, it's, it's, um, it's set in those times, yeah.
1: And, have, and how, how have you found doing that, sort of writing
4: that um, sort of historical fiction? The, I mean, the figure that began to obsess me was Orestes, because um, he doesn't get to speak much um, in the Oresteia or in any of the other versions. Whereas we hear from Clytemnestra, especially in the Euripides, Iphigenia at Aulis, and we hear a lot from Electra in, in the various versions, but Orestes uh, but is, is often missing and then just comes back and is sort of used, to basically, to kill his mother. Uh, and we hear from Agamemnon, but... So, so it's the boy that I began to say, well, where was he, when he before he came back? And also to try and get a, a version that's credible... For a novel reader, of the lead up to somebody killing the mother and the aftermath, uh, so, the, so the furies, uh, the, the element of the furies in in, in the last part of the Aristaeus has to be psychologically credible.
1: So you, you're kind of injecting a, a bit of realism into what can I feel quite rich. Yeah, in
4: that. I, I mean that, that 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 was the aim to to actually take out a lot of the furies and the gods, and bring it down to dry land and see where, where it would take me.
1: Because in some senses, I suppose, Orestes is the victim of, of fate. He feels like he's very pliable. It's th- things are always happening to him. Right? And then he actually commits an act of ultimate agency. But before that, he's very much sort of pushed around by forces that are stronger than him.
4: Yeah, and that's what fascinated me, that he's the passive one. He's the younger brother. He's the one that arrests, that, that Electric can tell what to do. So therefore... From his side of the thing what's that what's that like
1: oh wonderful I look very we look very much forward to to reading that column um, uh, thank you so much for doing this uh, we'll, we'll be over to you in a second uh, to to hear these five poems that we are publishing in the TLS this week so you'll to end the show we're going to hear this poetry now by column Toybin read by the poet himself and until next week from Thea and from me goodbye but over to you
4: column miro He responded to the picture's need as a parent to a child's cry or a bird in the air to a worm or a fly. In San Clemente Dripping water and the smell of darkness, this is where I will go. Follow me now. Time pressed down, led down, down as the steps lead down. I will go into the dark without you. Below this, below there is more, and it is below that I belong to. Don't follow me further. Move away. Don't follow me further. Lost for Words The sea is all washed up. The house rocks on through the night. Nothing will see reason. Most things have left us, and some people too. Strange the speed with which they disappeared. And colours died that gave a shake to things. Just what is lost comes vaguely in these dreams. And the dead sad words float out in foolish space and have the weight of atoms in a wind. They do not want to come to earth again. I saw their tears unflowing in the sky. In an old house I heard some words for flowers, buttercup, lupin truth, and fleur-de-lis. And there were names for trees, bark-brown, oak, and hard. The loveliest of all, they said, easy to live with, and soft on the eye. On a saint's day, you climbed into its soul. Face. Drawn chalk-yellow out of dust, keeping us free from sin. Shadow sublime inventions, while I listen and say that I too have seen visions: the skin crack, the dried-up fist banging helplessly on a shut door. Locked hollow spaces left there after the war. The tortures art, like many torturers who came before, the arty favours has a hint of risk. naked bottom some cubist forms, but more unwieldy, more Picasso, than Juan Gris. Under the sweetness of his homely gaze I move from piece to piece and note the mess of squiggles, the maze of marks and dots, a wildness in the paint, a love of gesture filling every space, nothing white, nothing withheld or pale. The lopsided look of one depicted face suggests the tortures at home with pain, or wants it just enough to make its mark. In his house, of guests, we mill about. He dealt with those he set out to defeat. Freed, he smiles and caters for our needs.